Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. So hello and welcome to another episode of Bone Up the Podcast. We are about, I suppose, halfway through our second series, Richie, would that be that would be right? And uh, a very exciting guest coming up today, which we'll talk about uh, talk about later. Uh, how have things been for you? Pretty good. Just got back from holiday, so I'm nice and relaxed. And before going away on holiday, I submitted a couple of grants to UK government and each of them took about nine months to write. So it's been quite a year i'm looking forward to start of the new academic term uh, what have you been up to how are preparations going for the royal osteoporosis society conference yeah well as you say as well as my as well as my day job i have the honor i think of being vice chair of the committee which is arranging the conference the royal osteoporosis society conference september 13th and 14th of September in Manchester. I think the preparations are going well. We've a really exciting program. We've lots of fantastic guests from both inside and outside the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 we're starting to get excited, a little bit nervous, but but very excited about it to see it all come together. So um, certainly, if you're if you're listening to this and you're still in in two minds, please do come along and join us in Manchester, and you might even get to meet your your two favourite bone podcasters. <laughs> I'm genuinely excited about the conference. In all honesty, the Osteoporosis Society conferences are the best organised that I've ever been to. Everything runs really smoothly. The food is good. The talks are great. The audience are relaxed. Everybody's learning a lot of useful stuff. And it, it's really good fun. And there's always, you know, some drinks reception or dinner or something. It's like I've met so many wonderful people going to the meetings. Yeah, there's a lot of great people um, connected with the charity and who work for the charity. And we've had great leadership. And uh, yeah, it's a very it's, it's a great charity to be involved with. And as I think, you know, yourself, most people in the world of bone and bone research seem to be you know, fairly friendly and collaborative. And uh, yeah, it's something we're we're certainly looking forward to. We're not planning to do a formal sort of podcast from the from the conference this time but certainly uh do come up and say hello if you uh, if you're a listener we'd be glad to to get a selfie with you maybe yeah it'd be lovely it'd be nice to get some feedback as well so uh, that sort of brings us on to today and uh and our our, our special guest star i sounded just like the muppet show there i was going to say our very special guest star uh for today is well-known bone researcher from Imperial College in London uh, called Dr. Richie Abel. 
you know, over over the last couple of years, both Richie and I have talked a little about what we do. You've you've heard an interview with one of my patients. I've talked about drugs I've used at clinics and so on. And you've also heard Richie talk a lot about about the work that he does, but really just in bits and pieces. And we thought it would be really good if we sat down and did a proper interview. So you got an idea of just the depth and breadth of research that Richie's involved with and just got a little bit of an idea of the passion that he brings to to this work. And uh, and we decided just to do an interview where I would interview him like one of well, like one of our guests. So um, welcome, Richie, to the podcast formally as a guest. Richie Abel, the podcaster, we know and love. We sort of feel we know a little about what you do during the day. But other than that, you're a, a scientist and, and clearly wear a white coat and goggles and are bent over a test tube all day. But tell us what does your role actually involve? Was that sort of a typical Dr. Abel day from eight in the morning to whatever time you work out at night? Thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, I guess I guess the uh, my mother's and the public's view of scientists is that we wear white coats and work in labs coming up with amazing discoveries that are going to change the world. But in all honesty, the job is mostly writing Word documents. <laughs> I guess uh, it's quite a diverse job to work in academia. Generally, day to day, there's a few important tasks I have to do. Primary one is supervising PhD students and postdocs. I have about nine that I supervise or co-supervise and they take up a lot of my time. Each one's doing a piece of independent research and they need help and support. As we spoke about in the intro, I spend a lot of time writing grant applications. They can take a really long time to write and we have to put in a few every year. I do some work with companies, usually tech companies who are trying to develop devices for diagnostics for bone disease or maybe developing treatments for bone disease. And that's always really good and fun to do because it's hopefully going to be quite impactful research. I do teaching. Uh, until recently, I ran the research skills course on the medical degree at Imperial College, which was a lot of fun teaching undergraduate medical students how to do research. And Imperial College is very focused on turning out clinical academics. Now I run the BSc in surgery at Imperial College, which is a really fun thing to do, teaching budding surgeons how to do research in surgery. And a big part of our job is public and professional engagement. We're all expected to be able to somehow engage with the world about the work that we do in our labs and at Imperial. And I guess that's one of the reasons why this podcast got started, and that's my outlet for engagement. I think a lot of people outside our world don't realize that you have to apply for grants to get funding to do research. You know, I think the perception sometimes is that you work at a big university, the money is just there, you come up with the ideas and the research happens. But so much of the work is actually involved in persuading people to give you money, because if the money's not there, then then people don't get employed, the research doesn't happen. Um, when you're writing those grants, what's most important from your point of view? Is it how exciting is it how exciting the research is, the idea you have is, or is it how sort of impassioned you make the plea about the disease in itself? Or what 
you know, what have, what have you learned about grant, grant applications? Because I suspect many people listening to this just won't have any any idea about about doing that. That's a very good question. And it's something I ask myself almost every day. How do you write a grant that's going to land with the reviewers and persuade them to give you the money? I think the first thing to remember is that the people who review your grants are your peers, are the researchers in your field. And I think the most important thing that you have to get across is that your research will be impactful in some way. You will develop some new knowledge, some new skills, some new opportunities, which are going to be useful for somebody in the world. You know, in an ideal world, you're testing a new drug that's going to cure mm. a disease. Yeah. Uh, maybe at the other end of the scale, more the research I do, you're looking at the physiological mechanisms behind a disease, which somebody might be able to manipulate to create the cure to that disease. Even if your work is very impactful, you still have to sell it. You have to be able to explain what that pathway to impact is going to be. What would the steps after your research be to make it impactful in the world in some way? And you also have to bear in mind that sometimes these grant applications are quite long. I've written grant applications that go up to 120 pages. You know, and somebody's going to read that. And you have to make your grants interesting and exciting and easy to read otherwise the reviewers will never really get into it and won't know how impactful or exciting the research is the hardest thing about this job is writing the grants because it's a one-shot deal you know you write it and if you get rejected that's it but you have been successful very successful i think in saying it and getting Grants over the last few years certainly to do a lot of exciting work that hopefully we will hear about today. So I'm sure your course on how to write grants is, is one which should be oversubscribed. Although you don't want to give away all your secrets clearly because it is a competitive field, isn't it? You are competing against your peers. It's very competitive. Sometimes the funding rate is one in a hundred. If you're lucky, the funding rate is one in 10. It is incredibly competitive and you have to be able to come up with projects that really stand out and are written well in order to be able to get the funding. It's a tough job. Is this something you always wanted to do, Richie? I mean, I've said to you that I really wanted to be an archaeologist and still hope to be one. Uh, one day I'm just doing medicine to sort of fill in, but... Uh... <laughs> You always wanted to be a, a bone researcher, or what did you do before this, or what, what what brought you to where you are now? Originally, I wanted to be a paleontologist, mm -hmm. and my undergraduate degree was in zoology, and my postgraduate degree was in paleontology, a master's and a PhD. Just explain to us what paleontology is, because again, some people maybe don't aren't familiar with the term. Paleontologists are people who study fossils. And those fossils can be anything from a dinosaur up to and including an early human. And when I was young, I was quite interested in anthropology, which is kind of the study of humans. Mm -hmm. And I did my PhD in something called physical anthropology, which is the study of human evolution. Mm -hmm. And you usually do that with bony remains. And my PhD was about the evolution of the pelvis and bipedalism in humans. 
And after I finished, I went to work at the Natural History Museum in London. I got a job in the mineralogy department and I installed a CT scanner. And I used that CT scanner to scan fossils in the collections to do work with paleontologists. Mm -hmm. I also scanned lots of other really interesting stuff like meteorites from Mars, hammerhead sharks, insects encased in amber, all sorts of things. Mm. I really enjoyed doing that job. It was about studying the collections in the Natural History Museum to try and unlock the secrets of the universe and the planet Earth and the natural world around us. It was absolutely amazing. So how did you move on from, if I can call them dead bones, to to living bones then? While I was at the museum, I started to support scientists from Imperial College who were doing biomedical research. They would come to the museum to use the facilities. Listeners at home, you might not know this, but the Natural History Museum is actually a really big research institution. There are about 400 scientists and research staff, and I was one of them. And part of the research we did would be with universities all over the world. And we had lots of really amazing expertise. Mine in particular was in imaging, using CT scanners, etc. So I worked with people at Imperial College who were designing stents, who were designing implants for uh, putting into humans to replace knees and hips and that kind of thing. So I got an introduction to the biomedical research that was going on at Imperial College. And I was supporting the scientists to scan medical devices and then create 3D reconstructions, which they would use in their research. And then one day I saw a job advert at Imperial College and they wanted somebody who could use imaging to study bone diseases like osteoporosis. And I thought, wow, you know, I've been supporting the people at the college who were doing this job. Maybe I could do that job. But I didn't really know much about osteoporosis. So I had a quick Google and I came across what was then the National Osteoporosis Society website. And they had a video, uh, a testimony from somebody living with osteoporosis called Gary. He was explaining that he suffered a vertebral fracture. And as a result of that vertebral fracture, he lost his job working in mm -hmm. packing in a factory. And because he lost his job, he lost his income, he lost his home and he lost his friends. Mm. I was really just moved by that story, mm. just the devastating effect that a fracture would have on somebody's life. And I thought, I'm going to go for this. So I applied for the job at Imperial and I've never really looked back. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. Again, it shows some of the passion you have for this for this condition and for the work that you do. And I do, I mean, I think this is something we've talked about before. People come from different areas sometimes to bone research and probably actually to work even clinically in, in bone. It's something you've heard me and other clinicians talk about how, you know, some people come as endocrinologists, some come as rheumatologists, some come as care of the elderly physicians. And I think that quite diverse background that people bring to bone and bone health and bone research is is a healthy thing and a good thing because you bring in, I mean, look at the experience you've had of sort of imaging fossils and all that, that you're still working at in your projects. And I think that's a good and, and a healthy thing. And you I get the impression you've chosen to be where you are now. You haven't just sort of dropped into it, which is, which is good. I'm conscious of time here. I would like to ask you about some of the projects you've been doing that you've told us sort of little snippets about in previous podcasts and, um, you can mention it or not, but I presume most of these represent successful grant applications. 
I mean, one of the things that I find interesting when you mentioned to me, you've done work with the Royal Ballet Company. Um, I have a, a, a small interest or, or an increasing interest, I think, in, in stress fractures and injuries in young athletes, particularly in female athletes. I get some more referrals for that to my, to my clinic. Ballet dancers are a group of people who have a lot of problem with stress fractures as well. They're, they're amazing athletes. Um, and that's something you looked at and, and maybe tried to learn things about bones in general from what happens with, with ballet dancers. Tell us, tell us a little bit out on the work that you did with, with the Royal Ballet Company, if you would. A lot of projects in science come from chance meetings and chance conversations, you know, having a beer with someone. Way back in about 2014, somebody was visiting the lab. His name was Dr. Greg Retter, and he was a clinician at the Royal Ballet Company in Covent Garden in London. And he was being given a tour of the lab, and we got talking about the research that I was doing into osteoporotic fractures. And at the time, I was studying some osteoporotic stress fractures. And he said, well, you know, our dancers get a lot of stress fractures. Do you think you could apply the research that you were doing on the ballet dancers? They needed to know who was going to, who were going to get stress fractures and the stress fractures normally occur in the feet, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted to know how they could try and speed up the healing of the stress fractures. And they wanted to know how they could judge when a dancer who suffered a fracture could return back to training and performance. And I was quite surprised really to, to hear how serious the injuries are. A stress fracture, as you well know, is just a tiny fracture maybe in a small bone in the foot. But they can be enough to put a dancer out of training and performance for many months or a year, and in serious cases, they can be career-ending. I hit the literature, which is the first thing you always have to do as a scientist, and there wasn't really much information about stress fractures in ballet dancers, other than they tend to have a lot of them. So we thought we need to try and do something to study the natural history of stress fractures to try and get some idea about which dancers get them and when and how. So we ran two pilot projects, about three months long each, down at the the ballet in Covent Garden. And what we tried to do was see if it would be possible to recruit a group of dancers into a study and follow them over time to look at their lifestyle, to look at their activity and to collect urine samples and blood samples to analyze their physiology. We were able to do that. The dancers are actually very engaged in the research. They want to do whatever they can to prevent themselves getting stress fractures. I used the data to try and understand how, how the dancers were living their lives and how that could potentially be affecting their risk of a stress fracture. And as you can imagine, the first thing we discovered was that dancers do an incredible amount of exercise. One thing we tried to do as part of the study was put pressure sensors in their dancing shoes so that we could understand what kind of forces were going through their feet, because Mm -hmm. maybe bigger forces equal more stress fractures. The forces were so big, they broke all the pressure sensors. (laughs) They worked in football players and rugby players, but ballet dancers (laughs) broke them. So the, the urine and blood samples actually turned out to be very useful and very insightful. The other thing we found out was that when we measured biomarkers for bone turnover in blood and urine, 
the ballet dancers didn't really differ from age and sex match controls. We got a bunch of controls from Imperial College who are basically medical students. Mm-hmm. And we measured molecules in the urine and blood that tell us how much bone is being resorbed and how much bone is being formed. And I think they're the mm-hmm. same markers that you probably use in your clinical practice. Yeah. P1NP for formation and CTX for resorption. So exactly. The, I sent several of those this morning just before I came to speak to you. So yeah. So that's great to hear you're using things which are relevant to me in the clinic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. And this is important because if we are going to do something useful for the dancers, it really does need to build into current clinical practice. Absolutely, yeah. What I found was that the rates of remodeling, which are really the rates of repair in bone, Mm -hmm. this is the removal of old and damaged bone and replacement with new healthy bone. The rates of repair in the dancers were about the same as the controls, even though they were doing just crazy amounts of exercise. Ballet dancers make rugby players and football players look lazy. So this is interesting. Why is it that even though they do all this extra activity, the bones can't seem to increase the amount of repair Mm -hmm. to stop these stress injuries, these stress fractures occurring? The other thing that the the urine and blood samples were useful for was looking at estrogen levels. Mm -hmm. And estrogen is a very important hormone for powering up bone cells it encourages osteoclasts and osteoblasts to resorb and form bone so i thought well you know maybe there's a difference in the estrogen levels and when i compared the estrogen levels i found that the dancers were slightly lower than the controls but not much lower mm-hmm. and there's lots of studies that have looked at other athletes like you know runners and rowers etc that show that women who exercise a lot have lower estrogen levels and that could affect bone repair because mm-hmm. the low estrogen might mean that the bone cells aren't powered up enough in order to be able to repair the bone. But there wasn't that much of a difference. Perhaps a more important factor could be the metabolism of the estrogen. I was able to use the urine samples to look at how the estrogen was metabolized in the dancers' bodies. And as you well know, estrogen in the body is metabolized into lots of different molecules. And it's those metabolites that go to cells and react with the receptors on the cells and give the cells some instruction. And there's basically two kinds of metabolites in the body. There's a 16-OH version and a 2-OH version. Metabolism of estrogen is about hydroxylation, which is the adding of of an oxygen and hydrogen to the molecule. The 16-OH version of estrogen binds very strongly to the receptors on cells and the 2OH version binds less strongly. And what I found was that in the controls, estrogen was mostly metabolized into the 16OH version, the strong version. But in the dancers, estrogen was metabolized into the 2OH version, the weak version. It could be that there's an imbalance in estrogen metabolism in the dancers that favors the formation of metabolites, which don't have a very strong effect on cells, including the bone cells. Mm, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very subtle outcome. I wish people could see you moving your hands as you talk about this to see just how, you know, how engaged you are, are in it and how much you sort of believe in all this work, because it is, it is, and it's the sort of work which, 
as you say, and we've talked about this before, it's a very small group of people, but actually it potentially has implications for much, much larger groups of people. So, I mean, for all these things, the body does this for a reason. The body is not producing as much useful, strong, efficacious estrogen in this group of people. So why why not? Are, are there is there BMI lower than average? Is their menstrual cycle lower than average? Is the body trying to prevent something else happening and the bones are suffering as a result of that? Have you any, you know, what's your hypothesis for your next grant then on this? Why the body is behaving in this way? Because there's got to be some, as you know, there's got to be some logical way in which the body is doing this. It's not deliberately harming its own bones. It's got to be some other potential advantage, I presume, to this. So that's a really good question. When you think about dancers, I guess for everybody, the first thing you think about is BMI and diet. Yeah. So in terms of BMI, the, the dancers, some of them had the same BMI as our controls. Some of them had a lower BMI than controls, as you might expect. Potentially low BMI means low body fat. Body fat is used to produce estrogen, especially the triglycerides. So potentially, yes, the production of estrogen and the estrogen metabolism could be affected by low BMI. But as I said, not all of them had very low BMI. So maybe that's not it. So next thing we thought is maybe diet. For a long time, people have tried to study diet in athletes by collecting diet diaries. They're notoriously bad because people can't remember what they've been eating. I tried some, some new techniques using mass spectroscopy. A colleague of mine at Imperial ran the urine samples through a mass spectroscope. I was able to look at exactly what the dancers were eating week by week. Actually, the dancers' diet didn't differ from the controls. And that, that's by, just to clarify that, you look in the urine, you find metabolites in the urine, and you then can use algorithms to work back and work out exactly what those people were eating in the previous day or a few days or week in terms of carbohydrates, fats, and so on. That's, that's the thinking behind that. Yeah. Which exactly. is an amazing tool actually to have, isn't it for research? Oh, it's absolutely incredible. It's really going to be transformative. And for you in the clinical practice, at some point, mm -hmm. you're going to be able to collect this data from people and give them specific advice on how they might change their diet in order to prevent fractures. And so what advice, here's the, you know, $64,000 question, if anyone else uses that expression any longer, what advice did you give the ballet dancers? So we found then that maybe the diet was actually the same as controls and they are medical students and probably they're eating quite well. It's quite an informed group of people. I looked at their diet for the dancers in comparison to the WHO diet scale, which is a measure of how good a diet is. And it it's measured from zero to 100 and 40, zero being very bad, 100 being very good, and 140 being amazing. Dancers all scored 90. Mm. So I think maybe this might overturn the stereotype that dancers are not eating well, which could be important. And it's a small study, and they're the most elite ballet dancers. Right? So how generalizable this is to other dancers, I'm not sure. But it stands to reason if you're training and performing six days a week, probably got to be eating quite well, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to keep up with that. One of the nice things about studying the dancers 
is that it's a really good group of people who we can use for public engagement further down the line. Mm. So if we think about going out with advice, whether dancers, I'm not really sure what to say yet. Maybe what we need is a bigger study and we need to investigate this imbalance in estrogen a bit more closely and see if it's possible to rebalance the estrogen. And there might be ways of doing that with diet. Lots of very dark green veg like broccoli, etc., contains phytoestrogens, mm -hmm. which could help metabolism. Maybe having more calories could help. Maybe changing the exercise patterns could help. We're not sure. I've got funding for a four-year study to do a long-term follow-up of dancers and to really interrogate the natural history of stress fractures, really study in great detail in a lot more dancers, the physiology that underlies the stress fractures. And hopefully if we can tease apart differences in physiology between the people who get stress fractures versus the people that don't, maybe we can understand what the mechanisms are. And potentially then we'll be able to suggest some intervention or some change in lifestyle or diet. And hopefully, whatever advice applies to the dancers will also apply to the general public. Yeah, well, you can see obviously groups of people who would benefit from that in the general public and the people who come to my clinic. So that's very exciting. I want to move on to, to another area again, which we've heard you talk about um, on the podcast. And we've seen some of your exciting photographs uh, on Twitter as well. And that's the work you do at the Diamond Light Source. I know we talked about paleontology earlier, and I was going to say that's the study of dinosaurs. I know it's not really, but um, but that's how people perceive it, which is obviously a study of very big things, but really you're interested in the study of very small things, isn't that right? And a lot of the stuff we do, at, you know, you look at something like a FRAC score, which is trying to, trying to give an estimate of someone's risk of fracture based on population sort of level studies and so on. But you're looking at this thing called the nanoscale, which is high bones break at way, way smaller than the width of a human hair. Isn't that right? Tell, tell us a little bit what you're investigating with this diamond light source and how that all fits into this interest in bones at, at a very, very tiny level. And you can say something about dinosaurs as well, if you, if you like. <laughs> dinosaurs actually come in here, and I'll tell you why in a second. <laughs> they, all, they always do. <laughs> When it comes to bone, we as a community, we know a lot about how bones work and fracture at the whole bone scale, at the micro scale, and even the sub-micro scale. But we know almost nothing about bone at the nanoscale and the molecular scale. And we don't really know how bones fracture at that level. You'd think it would be important. If you ask a material science scientist, they'll tell you that when they're trying to build a new material or build an item out of a material, that knowing what the fundamental building blocks are and how they fix together and how they behave under load are really important for understanding how the material is going to behave. Mm -hmm. So you think it would be the same for bone, but nobody's really studied bone at this level. To just explain to the listener what we're talking about here, at the nanoscale, bone is made up of elastic collagen proteins which are stiffened by calcium mineral nanocrystals the analogy that i would give and i apologize this is a horrible one is a sweaty sock 
-hmm. cotton fibers, elastic cotton fibers, when they are hardened by salt crystals, can turn a floppy sock into something as stiff as cardboard. Bone is basically the same, right? It's these elastic fibers stiffened by crystals, only the organization is much better. So you can have a bone that is basically 10 times stronger than concrete, weight for weight. Very few people have studied bone at this level. And I think the main reason is because these structures are so tiny, they're really hard to image, they're really hard to measure. And to put this in perspective, listener at home, imagine an object the size of the sun, shrink it down to the size of a football, and then shrink it down by the same amount again. What you've got is one nanometer, and that's the size of a glucose molecule. I was kind of fishing around for a way to study bone at this level, and it turns out there's only one technique, and that's to use a particle accelerator. Most people will know about CERN, which is a particle accelerator. Mm -hmm. We have a similar one in the UK. It's called the Diamond Light Source. It's in Didcot in Oxfordshire. It's basically a giant steel donut about 560 meters around that accelerates electrons up to near light speed and then bends those electrons with magnets in order to create X-rays. As the beam is bent, the electrons lose energy. It's released in the form of an X-ray. And you can use those X-rays to do really accurate and high resolution imaging of objects. And an interesting thing to say here is that those of you who are fans of Einstein will know that as things travel faster, time for them slows. So these electrons are traveling around in the synchrotron right at near light speed, which means time for them slows. What is a few seconds to us and an experimental hutch is years in the perspective of an electron. And yet we're using those to create x-rays in our own time. And I've never really been able to put those two things together. How it's, we... it's hard to get your head around almost, isn't it? Even that concept of something, you know, something the size of the sun shrinking to a football and shrinking to the same amount of, again, I think the human mind struggles almost to deal, to deal with that. And I've always found that concept of time moving more slowly as you speed up. I think we all find that difficult to do, but here you are being able to use that for to study bone. So tell me then, what what are you, what sort of questions are you asking? Let me put it like that. What questions are you asking that being able to produce the X-rays and the X-rays in a way you can control? What questions are you asking with those with those X-rays? So I want to know how is it exactly that calcium mineral makes bone strong. I'm sure you're always telling your patients to drink more milk, consume more calcium. Mm -hmm. The listeners at home are probably hearing about eating calcium, taking collagen supplements, et cetera, to improve their bone quality. But we don't really know how calcium makes bone strong. The mineral crystals are a million times smaller than your thigh bone. How is it that such tiny crystals can make such a big bone so strong? And really the the fundamental interaction, I think, in bone is the one between collagen and mineral. If I wanted to know how it is that collagen is stiffened and made strong by nano-sized calcium crystals. And I spoke to a colleague of mine 
who worked at Diamond. He was actually a paleontologist and he was studying fossil spiders. And he said to me, <laughs> there's a facility called Diamond that might work for you. I'll put you in touch. And he even helped me write my first application to Diamond. I took a bunch of bone samples from the hips of donor patients. I put them into a beam line at Diamond. I measured how the collagen and mineral nanostructures behave when you, when you load a bone sample. And what I discovered is this. The first thing that happens when a bone sample breaks under load is that the collagen and mineral separate. So if you think about this, a fracture in a bone starts when collagen fibers and mineral crystals start to come apart. So you can imagine if somebody falls over on their hip and they break their hip, the, the hip is going to begin by bending, right? The thigh bone is going to bend. And that's going to pass stress all the way down to these nanoscale building blocks, the collagen and mineral. They're glued together somehow. And if you put enough energy in, they're going to break apart. That is going to form a molecular sized, then nano sized crack, which is going to propagate all the way through the bone and break the bone. Yeah. So it's, so it's the, it's the crystals are sort of not peeling off the collagen. That's maybe not a good way to put it, but that's sort of the idea. They're coming off. Is that? I think that's a really good way to put it. Is that right? Because, you know, our, our perception, let's say I get twin sisters age 75 and they both fall over at the same time and they both land on the right hip and one of them breaks a hip and one of them doesn't break a hip. And, you know, you do see this sort of thing a lot. And people say to me, why did I break my hip and why did my sister not? Or... Why did I fall last month and break my hip and I fell in the same place in the same way this month and I did break my hip? And when you go, obviously, it's something at that nanoscale level. Something happened when the force that was applied through the bone at a certain angle in a certain place, on one occasion, there was enough elasticity or density in the bone for it not to break. On another occasion, it did break. And what you're saying to me is it's maybe not all the collagen fibrils tearing apart, but it's actually the first thing that happens is the crystals actually peel off the collagen. Now, I yeah. can't immediately tell you how that's going to change my clinic next Tuesday, but that's very interesting to me to, to feel we're getting at some level of why bones actually break in certain circumstances. Your line of thinking there is exactly the line of thinking that I then had. Could this help us understand why some people fracture and some people don't? Why is it some people age healthily while others age and fracture? To try and interrogate this, I took two sets of samples, one from the hips of people who'd aged healthily without having a fracture and one from people who'd aged and sustained a hip fracture. And when I loaded the bone samples from those two groups, I found something very interesting. In the group that had suffered a fracture, the collagen and mineral came apart at much lower loads. The mineral peeled off the collagen at much lower loads, about a third lower. Maybe if it's easier for a fracture to start in the bone tissue, if it's easier for a crack to initiate and begin and then propagate through the bone, that could help explain why those fracture patients fractured. And to take it a bit further, the sample that I used ranged in age from about 45 years up to about 96 years. 
And what I found was, is as people get older, the amount of force it takes to pull the collagen and mineral apart decreases. And it decreases much more rapidly in the people who go on to have a fracture. So that's almost like a biological bone age then. Is that a way to describe that? That you could, if there were some way to examine this in patients, obviously you're putting pieces of bone into the synchrotron. My patients wouldn't fit into the synchrotron and they still want to hold on to their bones. So, but if there was some way to measure that, you would be able to say, you'd be able to spot the patients whose bone was almost biologically older or something. Is that... I think so it's, so, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a test you need that you can do without putting pieces of bone into your diamond light source. I kind of imagine that some people fracture because they lose bone mass. And some people fracture because they lose bone quality. Bone quality being, you know, the quality of the, the bone material. The diagnostics we have at the minute, like DEXA, really focus on the bone mass and partly bone quality because they measure the mineral, but they don't take into account the collagen and they don't take into account the interaction between collagen and mineral. So maybe if we could measure that, we would be able to identify more people at risk of a fracture. The difficulty we have now then is trying to collect a measure of bone quality that can go with the measure of bone quantity and before we can do that we have to work out what it is exactly that glues the collagen and the mineral together and the honest answer is we don't know bone community does not know what binds collagen and mineral together there are some theories and at the minute we're trying to test those and the way that i'm doing that is by using computer modeling i've reached out to the mechanical engineering department and the chemistry department at imperial they do something called atomistic dynamic molecular modeling, where they study how materials behave at an atomic level by building models of them on a computer. And together we have built a computer model of mineralized collagen, and we are using it to try and work out what exactly the nature of the bond between the collagen and mineral is. And that could be useful for two things. First of all, we could measure it as a diagnostic for bone disease. And secondly, it could be a treatment target for bone disease. Yeah, because we all, I mean, I think all clinicians involved in this area have a small group of patients who do suffer recurrent fractures and yet their bone density appears to be normal, basically. Yeah. And there's sometimes other reasons for that. But there are a group of people, often in their 40s and 50s, who have hip fractures, who have wrist fractures, who look in every way like a typical osteoporosis sort of phenotype, but appear to have normal bone density. So what I would really, and, and we do things, you know, we sometimes measure bone turnover, and it's much the same, and we go through family history, and maybe talk about menopause, and, and but really, we're, we're not, you know, we're not in a position to give an explanation for it. So that could be, they could perhaps genetically, family history somehow have a problem with whatever, I'm going to say protein, it might not be a protein, most things are proteins, is involved in basically sticking the calcium crystal to the collagen. Um, and I suppose it strikes me when you're looking at these people, have you thought of dividing them up into those, for example, who have a very strong family history and those who don't, 
those who are heavy smokers, for example, we know tend to fracture more easily than those who aren't heavy smokers. Are, are there other ways we could look at what might be involved in that bond by looking in the clinical area, you know, by looking at, at dividing people into different sort of clinical groups that I see? People who've taken steroids and people who haven't. Do steroids affect that bond, for example? So I have that data from the donors and I have DEXA scans. So I know the BMD and I know the T-score in the hip. We're just crunching that data now. And I'm trying to understand how it is that loss of BMD might affect the bond between the collagen and the mineral. And I suspect, basically, if you're losing mineral, then there's going to be a smaller surface area. As a result, the region, the size of the area for bonding with the collagen is going to decrease. So it could be something simple like that. But then you've got to think about the nature of the change in mineral. When people lose bone mineral density with age, we don't really know whether it's a loss of mineral crystals or a loss in size of mineral crystals or some combination of the two. Depending on how the mineral is lost, it could have very different outcomes for a patient. I remember a little while ago, you put a picture on Twitter of a lady, I think she had a T-score of minus five mm. and yet had never suffered a fracture. Yeah. That you were just describing a situation there. Well, okay, you've got people with normal BMD, but they fractured maybe several times. Why? Maybe the flip side is, how is it you can have somebody who's got very little bone and they don't fracture? Maybe it's very good material. I think your idea is a really good one. If we compare people with different BMDs and look at the structures and the mechanics at the nano level, we might be able to understand and tease out these differences between quality and quantity. The difficulty that we have is that we're always going to be limited in the number of samples we can study because time at synchrotron is very limited mm -hmm. and there's no other technique that we can use. I'm hoping that computer modeling is going to allow us to ask and answer these questions. And that once we've built a very good model of bone, that we'll be able to start modeling, okay, what happens if you change the mineral density? What happens if you change the structure of the collagen? What happens if you change the alignment of the collagen? And then we'll be able to start understanding how the system is changed by disease. Yeah. How it is that mass and quantity versus quality affect the bone. And then hopefully, hopefully, we can pick up the signals which you might then find useful in your clinical practice. You and I would have to work together dream up some way of measuring these things in clinical practice. That's what I was going to ask you. That's one of the advantages of this sort of podcast. So this isn't something you're writing down and giving references for or putting in a, you know, putting in a grant application. If I just say to you, let's imagine in 10 or 15 years time, as well as the DEXA scanner in the room to the left of my clinic, which measures bone density, bone mineral density. I have a scanner or a, or a machine of some sort in the room to the right of my clinic, which measures bone quality, and I'm able to put those together for a patient. So what do I need to get the technicians training in now? What is the bone quality machine? I know that's a sort of a very cartoon-like question, but what is the bone quality machine going to look like? Do you think in practical terms, is it a blood test? Is it a machine? What, what, what is it? Off the record, just you and me listening, Richie. 
So that's a really good question. And I have been working with companies who are trying to develop devices that can measure quality. One was ultrasound. Ultrasound is used in a lot of industrial applications, for example, spotting cracks in pipes. And if you pass an ultrasound wave up and down a bone, it's possible to not only measure the structure of the bone, but also the material properties because they affect the speed of the signal. The devices that I've tested so far didn't work very well because they couldn't get enough signal through the muscle and skin into the bone and back again to really measure the quality of the bone. There might be some ways around that, but ultrasound, I think, is possibly the most likely way that we're going to be able to get these measures in clinical practice. And it would do the same job as DEXA for mm-hmm. quantity as well as getting the quality measure. Yes, I was going to say, so what are you measuring in quality with the ultrasound there? Is it the is it the flexibility of the bone, the elasticity of the bone, or is it the architecture of the bone at a microscopic level that we're not picking up? What is the thing you're trying to measure? Strength and stiffness. Okay. Strength is the ability to resist fracture and stiffness is the ability to resist deformation. Okay, so the way the sound waves travel through the bone, you'll be able to tell how stiff it is and also how strong it is. That's the idea, as well as just telling how much bone there is there. In ex vivo tests, which is where we took bone out of people Mm -hmm. and did the ultrasound, we could measure stiffness and strength pretty accurately. But when we try and do it in the body, the measures are not very accurate because the sound waves are dissipated by the soft tissues. Yeah, it's a lot wetter in the body as well, isn't it? Exactly. And if you think about the hip, there's a lot of soft tissue. You've got the bum muscles. absolutely. And you've got the thigh muscles. They're really big, so it's really hard to do. We have some ideas about how to get around that that we're trying to work on. Another potential technique is laser spectroscopy. There are some groups that have developed lasers that you can shine through the skin into the bone and the laser energy makes molecules in the tissue vibrate. Yeah, vibrate yeah. You can read those vibrations back and you can study the chemistry of the bone. That could be a nice way to maybe study the collagen and the mineral and how well they're bound together and what the nature of the chemical interactions is. Very good. That's a very honest answer. We promised ourselves we'd keep within time because we tried to do this once before and just talk for hours and hours, as you know. There's one other thing which you've talked to me about recently, and I can see that sort of twinkle in your eye more and more each time you talk about it, and that's the relationship between environmental pollution and bones, which is a fascinating area. Many people will be aware, obviously, that Oh, for example, lungs can be damaged with environmental pollution, with gases. People will be aware that, for example, lead in the atmosphere can affect the sort of development of, of children, of brain development. But is it true that, that environmental pollution can affect bone health, can affect osteoporosis, fracture risk? To fill, fill in the gaps in that a little and tell us what you're hoping possibly to look at in that area. And what we should be worried about. I'm trying to find out if environmental pollution can affect bone health, can damage bone health. 
And we were talking about grants earlier on and how difficult it is to write grants. And you asked a very good question earlier. You know, what is it that you need to say? What do you need to put down in order to get the grant? One of the key things, I suppose, is being zeitgeisty. The world has problems. And if you are targeting your research to a problem, then you're more likely to get the money. I have heard a lot about how pollution affects organs in the body, like heart and lungs. And I thought, I wonder if it affects bone. I hit the internet and read some papers and there's a lot of epidemiological data that is studies of populations, which shows that people who live in areas with very high levels of air pollution are much more likely to suffer from osteoporosis or go to hospital with a fracture than people who live in areas with very low pollution. Isn't that fascinating and something a lot of people don't know? I know it's incredible, isn't it? The strength of the association is very high. A paper in the Lancet, a review, suggested that maybe air pollution can increase the risk of a fracture by about 10% and that maybe exposure to air pollution could account for 10% of fractures, which is a huge amount. Some people will, of course, say, well, are you, is, that, is that a causation or is that are you just mapping people who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and, and live in areas maybe where there's more pollution about and maybe don't have as much disposable income for food and exercise. What makes you think it's specifically the air pollution? Where's the, where's the pathophysiology behind this? You're absolutely right. Epidemiolo epidemiology alone cannot prove that there's a cause and effect relationship. If there's a very strong association, it can suggest a cause and effect relationship, but there's no guarantee. There was a call by an organisation called the UK Clean Air Programme. They wrote a report in 2020 saying that they needed more people from engineering, biology, chemistry, etc. to move into the air pollution field to support research into studying the mechanisms that underlie these relationships between pollution and poor health because you need the epidemiology and the mechanism combined as a stepping stone to prove cause and effect and it's only when you can really prove cause and effect that policymakers are going to take interest, healthcare, environmental policy, etc. So I'm trying to fill that mechanistic gap. There's a few ways in which I'm trying to do that. One way is by studying wild animals. I've teamed up with some people at the Institute of Zoology at London Zoo. They're studying the effect of air pollution on squirrels. They're collecting squirrels from central London along a pollution gradient out through London and Richmond and into Berkshire. Mm -hmm. They've given me the bones and I'm looking at the bones to see if the squirrels that live in central London have more particles of pollution in their bone and whether or not that's associated with weakness. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing the same thing using a laboratory study. I have collaborators in Australia at the Sydney Technology Institute who've done an exposure study in mice. They collected roadside pollution from a busy road in Sydney in an air compressor. Mm -hmm. Then they filtered out the particulate matter and they dosed that to exposed mice and control mice in a lab. Mm -hmm. And again, they were studying the heart and the lungs, but they've given me the bones. Wow. I'm going to be able to use those bones to study how pollution affects the bone and I think that maybe what happens is this. The particulate matter 
in air pollution, especially from roadside pollution, contains a lot of heavy metals. Cars have a lot of wear in the engines and the brake pads and the tyres, and there's a lot of road wear. And that wear releases heavy metal ions, magnesium, zinc, lead, etc. They are very similar to calcium. When they are inhaled or ingested into the body, mm -hmm. they travel through the blood supply to the bones, where it seems they replace calcium. I'm going to study what happens in the bones when you replace calcium with heavy metals. And it could be structural. It could be that if you change the constituent of the mineral, you change the glue with the collagen. So maybe you, you could make it easier for fractures to initiate. I'm also going to look at cell biology because potentially once you've got air pollution inside the bone, as the osteoclasts and osteoblasts remodel the bone, like we were talking about with the ballet dancers earlier on, yeah. they might be affected by the pollution and their cellular activity could be affected. And we know osteoporosis is an imbalance in cellular activity, too much resorption, not enough formation, maybe heavy metals accelerate or potentiate that effect. So there's a lot to think about here. That's a, that's a very thorough answer to the question about pathophysiology. I think we'll all be very excited to see how that goes and to, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, Richie, we've worked together for a few years now. It's been an enormous pleasure for me to work with you. You bring a huge passion to everything you do. Clearly at work, you bring a huge passion to being a dad as well, I can see. Um, are you happy with your career up to now? And what would you still like to achieve? Let me just, let me just put it that. What would you still like to achieve in your in your career? I think I am happy. I get to do quite a broad range of projects, which keeps me interested. I've got to visit places and people that maybe most people don't ever get to go to. When we were getting the ballet research started, I got invited to go down to the Royal Ballet in Covent Garden and I got a, a behind the scenes tour and it just blew me away. This is an absolutely fantastic place. And I remember there was a press show and I got to sit in a box and watch the press show for the ballet. Wow. You know, how many people get to do things like that? Yeah. In terms of what would I like to achieve? I would like to do a piece of research and collect some evidence that's going to change healthcare or environmental policy. I'd like to do something really good that would change the way people live their lives and make their lives better. Well, wow. and potentially to do that, maybe one day I could also move out of a research career and go and work for a government body or a think tank that works on developing policy potential ambition of mine one day wow i'm sure richie you would bring a fantastic amount to anything you were involved with and uh, as i said it's been a great pleasure to, to work with you and to do these podcasts with you and uh, we promised ourselves we would do this in under an hour and we're coming up to just 59 and a half minutes so um maybe you get a chance to go home tonight as well a little earlier and uh, and see your son as well because I think he, you've been inspiration to him. Oh, thanks, David. I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts with you as well. I've learned so much and got so much more insight, and it's been such a, it's been such a fun thing to do. You know, it re, it's kind of one of the highlights of my week now. 
that's great. Something that's something I think we really in, in do enjoy, listeners, and we're getting great feedback, and we hopefully we continue to do these as long as people uh, enjoy listening to us. So um, we'll get to meet up face to face again, Richie, in a few weeks' time uh, in Manchester, which will be great. And uh, and until then, uh, I think we just draw things to a close for today. Thank you. Bye bye, everyone. Thanks very much, Richie, for your interview today. Bye now.